Welcome back to Fasting Well. Today I'm going to share a summary of a book. And why am I going to do that? Well, this book is really relevant to other things that I talk about here, like fasting and a ketogenic diet, because one of the biggest reasons that people struggle when they start fasting or when they start keto is because they don't realize that they need a lot more salt. <laughs> and why do you need more salt? Well, because if you're on the standard American diet versus like a low-carb or fasting, on the standard American diet, you're going to be retaining lots of salt in your body because of your high insulin levels. And when you go back to like a healthier way of eating, you're going to have lower salt or sodium in your body than you're used to. So that's it's, it's a big reason why people don't stick with fasting or stick with keto is because they feel kind of crappy because they're peeing out more salt and they need more salt. So that's that's why it's relevant to this channel. Because then people are like, what? I always heard that salt was so bad for me. Um, how could I possibly consume more salt instead of less? And so people have this huge mental hang-up, huge mental barrier. Um, and that's one reason why they're not successful with fasting or sometimes with a ketogenic diet. Because in both cases, you probably need more salt. Um, so I'm going to be hitting some key points from this book because this book is so relevant to this topic and some of it's going to be really practical, um, really useful things for you to know. And some of it's just interesting, you know, background information, but stuff that you'll find probably really surprising or really interesting in some cases. Um, so I'm going to go through this book called The Salt Fix by James. Well, I, I don't know if I can pronounce his last names. De Nicolantonio. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> it's a long name. I think it goes by uh, James DeNick sometimes as like an abbreviated name. Anyway, it's called The Salt Fix. I think it came out in 2017 or 2018. I don't have that detail in front of me, but I have my other notes here. Um, but I'm going to go through some key points, some relevant points. And um, I think by the end of it, you'll have a pretty good idea what the book's all about. But more importantly, you'll understand kind of why have we been told to limit our salt and why is it possibly a good idea to eat more salt, not less, and what benefits you'll get by putting this into practice. So let's go ahead and get into it. All right, so the introduction to the book. What does he say in the introduction? And again, I'm going to try to be pretty concise and practical as I explain these things so that I don't take all day. You know, it takes uh, eight hours to listen to the book, so it should be a lot less of that to listen to this. <laughs> but in the introduction, and I'll be looking at my notes here part of the time. So basically, he kind of summarizes his thoughts in the introduction by saying, we need salt to live. Our bodies are always trying to balance the amount of salt inside. And by the way, salt is sodium chloride. And so sodium and salt will kind of be used interchangeably more or less um, throughout this, this summary because um, sodium is what you get from eating salt. All right. Um, so it's natural to crave salt. Uh, most people would be better off with more salt, not less. Um, one of the reasons we've been told not to eat salt is because um, people got confused and thought salt was causing the harmful things that sugar is causing, like high blood pressure, for example, that is mainly caused by sugar and insulin resistance and that sort of thing. So salt is often blamed for the harms of sugar. Um, and the dietary guidelines and other recommendations towards eating low salt are based on outdated science or just confusion or just really kind of the history of it's kind of weird, but... Um, but basically it's outdated science. It's lagging behind the best information available. Humans will naturally want to eat about three or four grams of sodium a day if you just leave them alone and don't tell them what to do. And so that's 
kind of close to the optimal range for most people to consume, um, as opposed to the dietary guidelines, which tell you to eat like one or two grams. Um, and then he shares like an anecdote about a patient who was having dizziness or some other issues, um, and how he recognized that that person needed more salt and they ate more salt and they felt way better. And he's, by the way, he's a pharmacist. Um, so that's kind of his role sometimes is it'd be talking to patients about the medications they're taking or whatever, but obviously he's gone beyond that and written books and so forth. So that's the introduction to the salt fix. All right. So what about chapter one? So chapter one is called, but doesn't salt cause high blood pressure? And that's because that's this idea that most people have in their heads. And it's the first objection that they often give if somebody tells them they might need more salt. Well, isn't that going to raise my blood pressure and cause all these other harmful effects? Um, so there, the salt blood pressure hypothesis was not based on sound science. It started in the early 1900s. Um, and decades later, in 1977, the first dietary goals were issued. Later, later it was called dietary guidelines. Um, but once that started and they were suggesting low salt based on some kind of shoddy evidence, then the horse was basically out of the barn. And, you know, to this day, there's still guidelines that suggest low salt. Like I said in the intro, you know, it's lagging behind the best science and so forth. Um, it turns out most people are not salt sensitive. And so limiting salt doesn't really help blood pressure for most people. Or if it does, it doesn't help it that much. Um, if you, and just talking about the blood pressure number, right? Like what is the actual blood pressure? But that's, that doesn't include, that doesn't reflect the other harmful effects of restricting your salt. Like if you restrict salt, you'll have a higher blood, a higher heart rate. Um, you'll have higher insulin levels because you're holding on to sodium in your kidneys as that's what the insulin will do. Um, you'll be more likely to crave carbs. And as a result of those things, you'll be more likely to be obese and diabetic. <laughs> um, and then there, there's a lot of reasons why people also are more salt depleted in the modern environment, including certain medications and other factors. Um, so that's basically chapter one. Okay, so chapter two is called We Are Salty Folk. So this chapter two kind of recaps a lot of history and then his explanation about um, evolution and things like that. Um, it starts by listing a bunch of important functions of salt in our body. So again, you need salt to live. You don't need sugar to live, but you do need salt to live. Um, and how does salt help you? Well, it helps your blood flow around your body and reach the places it needs to reach. It's important for reproduction. It's important for lots of things. Our brain regulates our sodium intake, so we don't really need to consciously do that necessarily because our brain kind of kind of tells us when we need more salt. You're going to crave salt if you need salt, more or less. Um, so again, he gets into evolution and kind of talking about, you know, originating from seawater and early humans having a high salt diet, contrary, contrary to some other beliefs to, in that regard. Um, he shares an anecdote about a lady with congestive heart failure and how um, I think he was saying that he had kind of been involved and suggested that she might do better. Oh, it might have been a relative, actually. Suggested she might do better with higher salt, and she, she did uh, seem to do better and or at least not get worse with the higher salt and have reduced some symptoms. Um, he talks about some of the downsides of salt restrictions as it relates to reproduction. So, for example, animals or humans that restrict salt will have more difficult reproduction, difficult time getting pregnant, smaller babies or smaller litters, um, and various other unpleasant symptoms, because that's kind of related to the whole 
you know, our history and our evolution or whatever, the reproductive side of things. Um, So that's basically chapter two about how salt is an important part of our human history. Okay, chapter three is called The War Against Salt and How We Demonized the Wrong White Crystal. Uh, So a little warning, this is the first chapter that's kind of a long chapter. There are only eight chapters in this book, so some of them are pretty long. Um, But I'll try to give you the concise summary if I can here. So some historical things that he mentions in this chapter that are pretty interesting. If you think about it, salt used to be valuable partly because it was used to preserve food, like to preserve meat. Um, And so people back in those previous centuries, when they ate that kind of salt-preserved meat, were consuming a lot more salt. Um, And also that that, uh, when refrigeration started in 1911, people started to eat less salt. So our ancestors, until the early to mid-1900s, were consuming a lot more salt than we do nowadays. So that's kind of an interesting historical bit. Um, And then in the early 1900s, I guess it was about 1904, when the salt blood pressure hypothesis was introduced. And so that's, that's kind of the first time that people were thinking, oh, well, maybe if you eat more salt, it makes your blood pressure higher, and if you eat less salt, it makes your blood pressure lower. And so they started to introduce that idea and talk about it more. Um, and, and then there's this thing called the rice diet from the 1930s that was influential. This one specific scientist, um, or doctor or somebody developed this rice diet and did some studies with it and like recorded some data about how it affected the patients. It was low in salt, but it had a lot of other characteristics and ultimately it seemed to lower their blood pressure to some extent. But the research was never reproducible subsequently, and there were other things about the diet that probably impacted it. And overall, it may have been more harmful than beneficial because um, the, the author of this book points out that in those studies, some of the people had cardiovascular collapse and other problems. So anyway, <laughs> so some historical things. He starts to get into things that are related to why salt was demonized, and this rice diet was one of them. Um, so later, you know, in the 1940s or so, the low-salt diets fell out of favor with scientists until they were kind of brought back by stubborn scientists who were doing some kind of research, often with like genetically engineered animals who were not really representative of humans and such. Um, So one thing I thought was really interesting is he talked for a while about how uh, ancestors of us in Europe and America um, often consumed huge amounts of sodium per day. So in various countries like France and uh, Scandinavia, I think, and various parts of Europe, and um, he talked about how like historically those people were consuming even like 10 or 15 grams of sodium per day. That that was kind of typical because of the type of food they were eating. Um, so I don't remember all the, all the fine, fine details, uh, and I didn't write all of those down, but I just thought it was super interesting that some of our ancestors consumed 10 times as much sodium as were, as our dietary guidelines tell us to consume. And they basically did fine in terms of chronic diseases, right? Like high blood pressure and diabetes and stuff like that. Heart disease, stuff like that. Like they mostly weren't dying from heart disease, right? Back then there was other stuff. Of course they died younger, so it's complicated. But um, So another thing really interesting in this chapter is that for the last 50 plus years, people have been eating about the same amount of salt, but chronic diseases have gotten way worse during that time frame, like diabetes and heart disease and stuff like that. So if it were the salt causing the chronic diseases, 
we wouldn't have gotten more chronic diseases. But guess what has increased dramatically over the past several decades? Sugar consumption. So sugar consumption increased, what was it, like many-fold, I wrote many-fold between 1800 and then the early to mid-1900s, and then to this present day. So the, the, the timeline of sugar consumption closely parallels the timeline of worsening chronic diseases like diabetes and other things related to that, you know, like the high blood pressure, the fatty liver, the heart disease, and all those things. Um, whereas the timeline of salt consumption is kind of the opposite because our ancestors used to eat more salt, not less, and then now we are the ones that have where everybody's fat and diabetic, right? That's that's a modern thing. That's not a an ancient thing. Um, so a few other things from this chapter. Let's see what else we've got. Um, okay, so the guidelines. So they started saying to limit your salt intake in the 1970s, the 1980s, like in various dietary guidelines. And in those early days, they actually didn't say anything about restricting sugar. So sugar got a free pass. Um, so for whatever reason, even though there was some research and stuff starting to suggest how harmful sugar could be, even back in the 1980s or before, for some reason, sugar got a free pass in all the dietary guidelines early on. And it's only very recently, maybe 2015 was the first time that there was sort of a cap on the amount of sugar that you were recommended to eat each day. (laughs) Whereas the salts, um, had been demonized even starting with those dietary goals in the night in 1977 and before that, but like it was officially quote demonized (laughs) starting in the 1970s and beyond. So one other thing I thought was really interesting in this chapter is how he points out that the sugar industry has been very influential at shaping guidelines and public perception. And there's a really severe publication bias. So oftentimes studies are, are, um, are sponsored or funded by the sugar industry in one way or another. And he found that um, when the sugar industry sponsors a study, there's about an 83% chance it's going to, it's going to say sugar is not that harmful. But if the, if a study is not sponsored by the sugar industry, then the opposite is true. There's about an 83% chance that it will say sugar is harmful. (laughs) So there's, the, the, that biases the conclusions that they draw in their studies when it's funded by a certain group. Um, and there's also a publication bias about what is actually published in journals sometimes because of those same influences. Um, so the most recent best research, various meta-analyses um, and other publications, have now acknowledged that there's very limited evidence for any benefit from salt restriction, but the public still doesn't seem to know that. Like you still, anybody you talk to on the street, they're going to be like, oh yeah, I got to limit my salt, right? Because that's what people kind of always think. Um, And then even the dietary guidelines are still very kind of outdated in this regard. (laughs) Um, So the public seems to not be aware of it. And so does the government or like the big organizations that sometimes create guidelines. Okay, so chapter three got a little long there. I'm going to see if I can be a little more concise on these other ones. So chapter four is called What Really Causes Heart Disease? And so the the kind of the point behind this chapter, I guess, is that a lot of people think salt contributes to heart disease by causing high blood pressure and that sort of thing. But what really causes heart disease? Um, Spoiler alert, it's basically processed junk food with a lot of sugar and starch. <laughs> but how does he explain all of this? What does he say in this chapter? So he he gives some population data from various countries like South Korea, Japan, France, showing that they have high sodium intake, but relatively low levels of 
high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease and even death compared to other countries with lower sodium intake. So that that kind of doesn't fit the idea that salt is the what's causing the heart disease. Um, salt restriction often only in, in, gives a very modest improvement in blood pressure, but has various harmful effects. Uh, one of the ones I haven't mentioned yet is that it activates this renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Um, and why does that matter? Because that system is kind of w- one of your rescue systems in your body that helps maintain blood pressure. Um, and so when your salt is low, that system gets activated. And as a result, um, you're actually going to have potentially have higher blood pressure. Um, now, various medications that people take sometimes block that system, like ACE inhibitors and others. Um, so other harmful effects of restricting salts are it actually raises your triglyceride level, your LDL level, uh, and raises insulin, as I mentioned before. Um, so various researchers have concluded um, that the overall harms of salt restriction are greater than the benefits. But again, this is not widely known to the public or seemingly to the government. <laughs> certainly not. Certainly hasn't been fully adopted in the dietary guidelines and things like that. All right, so what else? So we're still kind of told to limit our salt to about 2,300 milligrams, I guess, is kind of the typical thing for adults. Um, but again, like population data, he gets into a lot of population data about you know, higher sodium is not necessarily a problem and lower sodium can be a problem and so forth. Um, Now, one thing that seems to, if you do consume a lot of sodium, it seems like if you also consume a pretty good amount of potassium, then that kind of balances it out in a way um, and prevents the high sodium from causing higher blood pressure, at least in general. So that's one thing I thought was interesting. Um, And then some of the research he talked about suggested the optimal range for sodium intake for humans is probably between about about three to six grams of sodium. So again, for some reason, the dietary guidelines say don't go over 2,300 milligrams, which is 2.3 grams, right? But that the optimal intake is probably more like three to six grams, where where based on this particular research, there was increased death and other problems above that and below that. Um, but the problems below it were greater than the problems above that range. Um, so uh, so he gets into various other things and eventually talks about insulin resistance as the people that get higher blood pressure as a result of eating more salt. It's usually, if, if that's the case, it would probably be because they're insulin resistant. And they're insulin resistant because usually because of eating too much sugar and carbs. And what, what happens when you're insulin resistant? One of the many things that happens is... You hold on to more salt and water in your kidneys. So insulin tells your kidneys to hold on to more salt and water. Um, so then um, you could get higher blood pressure from the salt if you're insulin resistant. Um, so he goes on to say that sugar has been hiding in plain sight as the main contributor to metabolic syndrome, which is that combination of like high blood pressure and insulin resistance and belly fat and stuff like that, high triglycerides and, and whatnot. So just that metabolic syndrome, which greatly increases the risk of heart disease. Um, and as also the sugar has been hiding in plain sight as the main contributor to that, as well as blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and so forth. Sugar has been shown to increase cardiovascular risk by three times and increase the risk of diabetes, even when calories are constant. So the more sugar you eat, the more likely you are to have diabetes, even if you eat the exact same amount of food. Um, so what really causes heart disease? sugar (laughs) and other forms of sugar like flour and so forth, things that turn into sugar in your body. 
All right, so that is chapter four. Luckily, chapter five is slightly shorter than chapter four, so maybe I can keep that a little more concise. So chapter five is called, We Are Starving Inside. And uh, he uses this phrase, internal starvation. And basically, the long and short of it is, when he talks about internal starvation, it's mainly referring to insulin resistance. And that's because um, if you're insulin resistant, then you're not able to use the sugar effectively in your body. And then it causes a bunch of other problems, including lower energy levels and stuff. So that's what he's kind of referring to with internal starvation. But some of the main points he makes in this chapter is that higher insulin leads to um, insulin resistance in the muscles, in the fat, fat tissue, and leads to weight gain and various other harmful consequences. And so you'll be hungrier and less active as a result of that type of internal starvation um, because your muscles, you know, maybe aren't able to use the sugar as well, et cetera. Um, and then he points out that low salt levels will raise triglycerides, LDL, and total cholesterol. And maybe be, you might become iodine deficient and therefore have low thyroid function, which could further make you have lower energy levels and stuff like that. And low salt has other harmful effects like lowering your metabolic rate, lowering your basal, basal metabolic rate. For example, it adversely affects brown fat, which is that type of fat that helps you just burn off energy to, to um, store, uh, create heat and stuff like that, produce heat in your body. Um, and specifically, low salt has been show, shown to raise fasting insulin levels, which could push someone who's pre-diabetic into becoming diabetic. Think about that. Low salt can actually make you diabetic. And so broadly speaking, it certainly has done that to many people because, you know, think of all the people who have tried to restrict their salt levels because of the dietary guidelines and stuff like that. Um, higher salt can have the opposite effect. So if you eat more salt, it can potentially help you normalize your insulin level and your insulin sensitivity and therefore improve blood sugar levels. So how ironic that this recommendation to restrict salt might be driving people into diabetes for multiple reasons. Um, so, so basically the reason your body increases insulin when you restrict salt is because then the insulin will help to hold on to the salt because your body needs to hold on to the salt because you need salt to live. So the insulin helps you hold on to the salt by causing your kidneys not to excrete as much salt. In other words, you don't urinate out as much salt or sodium when insulin is higher. Um, he, he talks a little bit about diuretic medications, um, how those also contribute to insulin resistance for the same reason, because you're peeing out more salt. And so then your body's going to have to try to find some way to try to hold on to the salt. Um, and then he talks about low carb, so keto or low carb, and says if you go on a low carb diet, you're going to be peeing out more salt than you're used to, and so you might get a total body salt deficit, and so you should probably eat an extra two grams of sodium, two grams is 2,000 milligrams, of sodium the, each day for the first week, and then about one gram extra for the uh, after that per day. So to kind of supplement and make sure and get a couple extra grams of sodium each day for the first week and maybe about one gram after that. Um, and then he talks a little bit about different types of sugar and how it contributes to insulin resistance and so forth and other harmful effects of sugar, uh, but I won't belabor that point too much. So various harmful effects of sugar in the body. So to fix insulin resistance and internal starvation, the key is to limit sugar but get plenty of salt. Um, basically is kind of his final takeaway from this chapter, chapter five.
Okay, chapter six. Chapter six is called Crystal Rehab, Using Salt Cravings to Kick Sugar Addiction. So you can tell a little bit from the title there. Um, He starts off by pointing out that salt in your body has a negative feedback cycle. What does that mean? The more salt you consume, the less you crave and vice versa. So you eat salt until you have enough. Um, Sugar is the opposite. It has a positive feedback cycle. The more sugar you eat, the more you want. (laughs) And lots of people get addicted to sugar. Um, So he's kind of contrasting those um, in that regard. Now, there are various downstream consequences of sugar addiction, which he talks about in this chapter. talks a lot about sugar addiction. Um, And then he, he... points out that if you restrict salt in your body, then you actually, you start to crave salt more and your brain makes some changes as a result of eating less salt, where you kind of have a increased reward response to eating salt, but that has kind of a crossover, has a crossover meaning that then you're actually more likely to to get addicted to sugar or drugs (laughs) as a result of this salt restriction. Uh, that's a little crazy, eh? So in other words, your brain is like turning up the rewards to the salt, but then that affects the other things too, if you restrict salt. So that's another harmful effect of restricting salt is you could be more likely to get addicted to other things, including sugar. Um, now, pregnancy. What about pregnancy? I mentioned reproduction earlier. So he goes on at length about some of the harmful effects of salt restriction during pregnancy. So if a mother is not eating enough salt during pregnancy, it can predispose the child to crave more salt, to be more susceptible to sugar and drug addiction. And even he had mentioned in an earlier chapter, I've got a note here, that salt restriction in pregnancy um, promotes the child having more body fat and higher insulin levels down the road. So don't restrict salt in pregnancy, basically. Um, And and, uh, I think it's a later chapter where he gets into how preeclampsia, that condition where Uh, women have various symptoms during pregnancy, including high blood pressure, uh, often gets a lot better when they eat more salt rather than less. So if that's in a later chapter, I'll mention it again. But that was another really interesting thing related to pregnancy, how really extremely high levels of salt consumption actually helped preeclampsia in some of the um, studies that have been done a few decades back. But that, that knowledge has sort of been forgotten, like it's not really part of anything that we talk about in the medical field nowadays. Um. So he talks a little bit about whether salt is addictive, and he says no. I think that's an interesting question, is can salty things be addictive? Obviously, salty things are addictive, like potato chips, but it's main, it's not mainly the salt that makes them addictive. It's the blood sugar response and the rewards related to the sugar that your body makes from the potato. Um probably much more so than the salt. And and like we said earlier, the salt has a negative feedback in your body. The more you eat, the less you crave. Um, and whereas sugar is the opposite. Okay, so moving on, you know, finishing up chapter six here. Um, an interesting thing is he kind of points out that it takes more energy for your body to hold on to salt than if you just eat the salt. So your body has to kind of work harder if you don't eat enough salt, because it's like trying to rev up all these mechanisms to hold on to the salt, like the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And also, uh, like cortisol gets involved. Um, so stress. So if you have if you consume less salt, you have higher stress hormones. Um, and, and you actually store salt in your skin. And uh, um, 
which I thought was interesting. So what he's kind of getting at there is like, if you eat plenty of salt, you can store it in certain places in your body. But if you're always restricting salt, then you'll deplete all your stores of salt. And your body will have to work really hard to try to hold on to the salt, causing the higher stress hormones, the higher insulin, and the higher renin, angiotensin, aldosterone, and all that stuff. So that is chapter six. Okay, we're moving on to chapter seven. And the thing about chapter seven is it's the longest chapter in this book. Uh, (laughs) But I think I can partially simplify it. Obviously, if you really want to understand all the details, you just got to read the book or listen to the audiobook. But chapter seven is called, How Much Salt Do You Really Need? Um, And he talks about like a healthy range of sodium intake, but he also goes through a bunch of reasons why certain people in in this modern climate, this modern environment may need more for one reason or another due to health problems or dietary practices or other things. Um, and talks about, again, some of the harmful effects of salt restriction and how the high salt helps in certain situations, including exercise, pregnancy that I talked about in the last chapter, and so forth. So let me give a few examples, get a little more specific to kind of give you a summary of this chapter. So again, three to six grams of sodium seems to be about the optimal range. Again, if I say a gram of sodium, what does that mean? It means 1,000 milligrams and so on nutrition labels, that's kind of how they list it is milligrams. So that's how you got to add it up is like 100 milligrams times 10 gives you one gram. Um, so usually you're mostly fine if you get too much salt, but you're not so much fine if you don't get enough salt, even though it's you might be better to be in that range versus going way higher, depending on the situation. Now, some there are a few specific medical conditions that do need to limit um, salt like uh, even congenital types of conditions and other things. He mentions uh, people with high aldosterone, high cortisol, and something called Little's syndrome. Um, Yeah, so very specific things. So you can maintain the salt balance in your body, even at a lower salt intake, but it's worse for you because your body has to work so hard to hold on to the salt and does all those rescue systems that I alluded to earlier. So various harmful effects of restricting salt, including the higher stress hormones, the higher insulin and blood sugar, and lots of other things. Um, All right, so there's a bunch of situations and reasons why you might need to consume more salt to kind of because maybe your body's losing more salt as a result of one reason or another. One is if you're taking diuretics. So those are certain common medications like Lasix or furosemide, as well as hydrochlorothiazide, which is a common blood pressure medicine and others. Um, so those will make you pee out more of the so- sodium. And so you kind of need, you'd kind of need to consume more, which is ironic, or maybe just need to not be on that medication. <laughs> um, depends on your overall situation. Um, another, he also mentioned low carb diets, fasting, talked about that a little bit earlier, chronic kidney disease, maybe CHF, and sudden stresses or when you like get an infection or something, um, your body kind of needs more sodium under those conditions, bleeding, burns, etc. So there's lots of specific situations or when you're exercising and sweating, um, specific situations where you need more sodium. So let me uh, kind of quickly go over this and see what other specifics are worth sharing. So he talks about, again, those traumatic events, like if you get a burn or you get injured, your body might need more salt. If you eat less salt, you're more likely to get a urinary tract infection because you won't be kind of flushing that out as much with the with the salt from your body because, uh, you know, salt kind of helps kill bacteria and stuff like that. Um, he points out that low salt, called hyponatremia, low salt in your bloodstream, is common, 
for various reasons. It happens a lot among the elderly. It happens to people that take diuretic medications. It happens with people who have um, gastrointestinal disorders where they are either bleeding from the GI tract or um, can't absorb things as well. Um, and he talks about the symptoms of low salt. You know, it's like fatigue, and if it gets really bad, it can cause seizures and blah, blah, blah. It's really common. I mean, I see it in the ER a lot, so it is pretty common. Um, athletes in particular kind of need more salt because they're going to be sweating and they not only lose the sodium, but iodine, the iodine that you sometimes get from your salt, you know, iodized salt. Um, and he talks about how much to use. He's like saying, um, an athlete might lose about one and a half grams of sodium. He's probably talking about one hour of exercise or something like that, but lose about a gram and a half in a moderate climate and almost three grams in a hot climate. So if you're exercising and sweating a lot, you really do need more salt to replace that. Um, he talks about supplementing salt before exercise, maybe about a half a teaspoon, a half hour before exercise. Half a teaspoon is roughly one gram of salt. So, And then you double that if you're in a moderate or a warm climate and triple that for a really hot climate where you're going to be sweating a lot. Um, and then the same thing for sauna. If you go to the sauna or somewhere where you're sweating a lot, he, he, points out that garlic salt might be easier to eat. So when you're actually getting the salt, the garlic salt is kind of more palatable and talks about other ways to get the salt in your body, like mixing it with lemonade or certain types of juice. Soy sauce is a good one. I've often talked about that. Pickles, pickle juice, bullion cubes. Um, he gets into the whole pregnancy thing here, how there's a lot of harmful effects of salt restriction in pregnancy and people with preeclampsia can often do better or be cured from that by consuming a lot more salt, as shown by certain research from the mid-1900s, which is not really cited much nowadays for whatever reason, but it did seem that it was very helpful. Um, and so if, if the society-wide recommendations to restrict salt are applied to pregnant women, that can be super harmful to the women and to their offspring for the reasons that I've alluded to earlier. Um, he goes on to talk about other situations where higher salt may be helpful, like people with insulin resistance and diabetes for the reasons we talked about earlier. Um, and he talked about a specific study where salt supplementation helped improve insulin sensitivity and chronic kidney disease. I guess when you have chronic kidney disease, you start losing more sodium from your kidneys. It's kind of like they're leaky, leaking out salt. And so some of those people would benefit from higher salt intake. Um, all right. And then, uh, dialysis, he even talks about dialysis. Some people on dialysis may benefit from higher salt intake in some cases. That one's a little more complicated. Um, but I guess people on peritoneal dialysis are at risk of low salt levels and it tends to worsen outcomes. Um, this one's a little tricky. Obviously you'd want to do the, do some research and see how it applies to your individual situation, but I'm just pointing that out. Cause like, it is a little tricky to figure out exactly how much you need if you have kidney failure or severe chronic kidney disease. Um, you know, elderly people tend to lose more salt in their kidneys. Um, they can't retain it as well, and so they probably need more salt in some cases. And, uh, and he goes on and on. So the low-carb diets, he specifically talks about low-carb or keto. Um, again, probably benefit from, from consuming an extra couple grams of sodium the first week each day and about a gram per day after that because and then your body kind of adapts after a week or two but you still need more than you're probably more than you think you need but your body's a little better at adapting and kind of holding on to it to some extent uh, fasting is kind of the same especially extended fasting 
Um, and that's why I often talk about consuming lots of extra salt during extended fasting. But he talks about how you can get total body depletion of sodium during an extended fast. Um, so a few grams per day of sodium could help a lot with that. So like three to remember that three to six gram per day amount that's kind of optimal. That would probably be a good target during fasting, during prolonged fasting. All right. Um, low salt can actually worsen osteoporosis potentially. And he, he talks about this in the context of fasting, I think. But it's just in general because your body might have to pull sodium out of the bones, places where it's kind of stored like that. Um, yeah. And this chapter, like I said, is really long. So there is more to it, if you can believe that, than the stuff that I've mentioned. Oh, one, one more that's really significant is the immune system. So when you get an infection, you might need more salt to help your body fight off the infection because your immune system... Uh, sodium is important for your immune system. So, um, and your body kind of puts more sodium into the fluid around cellulitis, like a skin infection. It's part of maybe, maybe part of kind of fighting off the infection because salt kind of kills bacteria, stuff like that. So higher sodium during infections is, is likely beneficial. That kind of fits one thing that we do in the hospital is people that have sepsis, a blood infection, is to give them a bunch of sodium chloride, you know, saline, a bunch of saline, in through their IV. Um, and that's one of the things that's been shown to be beneficial. And we always think of that as like maintaining blood pressure, but it may also be because it's helping fight the infection directly as well. Um, and, you know, people with diabetic ulcers probably heal better with more sodium. And he talks a little bit more about iodine and the risk of goiter. If you are sweating a lot and don't get enough salt, or if you're peeing out, you know, on a diuretic or whatever, or on keto and losing too much salt and so forth, um, you might be losing iodine through various ways as well, uh, especially the sweat. He kind of emphasized the sweat. Um, and there's a lot of other conditions um, that may require more salt. He talks about autism a little bit. I won't get into all the details. So that's chapter seven. It goes on and on and on and on. Basically, three to six grams is kind of optimal, but there's a bunch of different situations or conditions where you may need more and it may be beneficial. And, and there's a lot of reasons why it's uh, harmful to restrict salt. Chapter 8. Chapter 8 is the last chapter. Uh, chapter 8 is called The Salt Fix. Give your body what it really needs. So chapter 8, he has five steps to reset your salt thermostat, reverse internal starvation, and bring your body back into balance. And you can do these in order or in parallel or whatever order works. Um, so these five steps are kind of what he recommends doing to kind of fix, um, like you said, your salt thermostat, fix the insulin resistance, and kind of just get things working better. Um, so step one he's, is called get tested for internal starvation, also known as insulin resistance. So he talks about some signs of insulin resistance, like the belly fat and being sh being shaky after consuming sugar and stuff like that. Uh, some tests that you could do with your doctor like your fasting insulin and other similar tests of glucose and insulin. A good fasting insulin level is about five or less in international units, he says. Um, and then he suggests looking at your medications to see if you're taking any medications that might cause or increase insulin resistance. And he talks about specific examples of what to swap out. Um, like you could replace this medication with that medication. Um, so he's a pharmacist again, so he knows a little bit about medications. Uh, step two is replace refined sugars with salt. So you can kind of tell. He, he goes through a bunch of examples. Um, basically, eat the salt that you crave. Um, you know, don't try to limit it too much um, or at all, perhaps. 
but do limit your sugar. His 20-80 rule is to have no more than 20 grams of added sugar 80% of the time. So that's just kind of a good rule of thumb to typically avoid drinking sugar as liquid sugar is the worst form. So that's soda, juice, and sweetened teas and coffees and other things. Um, you know, look for the sugar on the ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. And there's many forms of sugar. Some are more harmful than others, but they're all harmful, basically. <laughs> Even something like agave nectar, which has a lower glycemic index, has more fructose, and fructose has some specific harmful effects to your liver and otherwise. Um, and he kind of recommends against artificial sweeteners because they can make you crave more sugar and have other issues. Um, he talks about where to get your sugar if you are consuming sugar, like fruit that's not quite ripe, resistant starch, blah, blah, blah. So he kind of gets, he goes through various types of food and stuff and has some recommendations. All right. Um, so he again talks about if you're on low carb, like getting more sodium, as I've explained a couple of times. So step three in this chapter is focus on whole salty foods. So now that you're not worried about restricting salt, you can actually eat healthy, salty foods. And what are some healthy, salty foods? Well, think about the Mediterranean diet. He points out the Mediterranean diet, which is generally considered to be healthy or heart healthy or both, um, is not at all low in sodium if you look at the actual Mediterranean diet because it would include things like sardines, anchovies, uh, soups, aged cheeses, and so forth. So a lot of those things have a lot of extra sodium, um, and but they're considered healthy foods. So your body wants to get, you know, let's say five grams of sodium daily. So if you eat foods that are foods that are low in sodium, you'll tend to eat more food because your body wants the salt. And so if you're eating food that's low in salt, you need to eat more food to get it. But if you eat salty foods, you won't crave as many foods. <laughs> you won't feel like you need to overeat as much is kind of what that's saying. Um, salt also makes healthy food more palatable sometimes, like certain vegetables and things. So don't be afraid to add more salt to your food because it is going to make it easier to eat foods that are bland or bitter, um, like a lot of different vegetables. And he goes over some very specific meal ideas and food suggestions that I won't go through all the details. Um, some salty foods also help you get other minerals, um, like some of those same foods will have magnesium, potassium, calcium, etc. Um, and fermented foods are sometimes salty, and those can be really beneficial too. Kimchi is one example. All right. Step four, add in natural, higher nutrient salt. So then, he, so here's where he finally talks about types of salt, because I know some people are almost fanatical about this, saying that like this regular white salt's going to kill you, um, and that, uh, that you need to have like the other types of salt, the more natural types of salt. And I think there's some truth to that, but it's probably a little exaggerated as a broad general <laughs> point. Um, but he talks about the types of salt and how they're potentially different and potentially beneficial. Um, so table salt that, you know, just your regular table salt is very highly processed. It's been heated up and they strip out the other minerals and has anti-caking agents. So other chemicals or whatnot, other things in there. And it has microplastics. So, you know, from the pollution and everything, there's the microplastics. So that's some of what you're getting when you eat regular table salt. Uh, it does have the iodine added, which is good in some ways because that helps prevent the thyroid problems. Um, but there's other types of salt that may be better. He goes through about five different ones. The, the one that he recommends the most or thinks is probably the best is this one called Redmond Real Salt, which comes from an ancient seabed in Utah. 
Um, so it's relatively pure, doesn't have as many of the microplastics or other pollutants, has a pretty good dis distribution of different minerals, um, and doesn't have, of course, um, the anti-caking agents and stuff like that. Some other options are like the Himalayan pink salt. That's pretty good, but it has trace amounts of radioactive elements. Um, and then the, the other ones like the uh, Celtic sea salt, Hawaiian lava salt, etc. He lists various pros and cons of those. Overall, they're maybe not as good as those as the first one and the, maybe the first two that I mentioned. Um, yep. And then he, he kind of breaks down exactly how much of different minerals you get from those different ones and so forth. So step five is let salt fuel your exercise. So once you start having healthier habits, like what he's explained in this book, less sugar, more salt, you'll probably be more energetic and you might want to exercise more. And that's good because exercise will help you be more insulin sensitive and build muscle and be healthy in other ways. But you're going to be able to exercise more with more salt. So it's kind of a virtuous cycle. More salt means more exercise means better health and so forth. Um, so uh, when you do exercise, you probably want to get some extra salt, basically. Earlier, I talked about like a, some specific levels related to if you're sweating. It was something like um, half a teaspoon for just a regular not too hot environment for an hour of exercise and then double that for moderate climate, triple that for like a hot climate, something like that. Um, yeah. And he says, once you put these five steps in practice, you'll reconnect with your salt thermostat, control your salt cravings, fix internal starvation, and be able to eat healthy food with normal amounts of salt. And you'll normalize your insulin levels and be able to use your body fat more, excuse me, more effectively for energy and your food won't go directly into fat storage as much as it did before. And uh, you'll be more aware of salt wasting activities and you'll know when you need more salt. And so you'll kind of, you'll be healthier, be able to control your body weight. And he says, not bad for a little dash of salt. So that's the end of the main chapters in the book. Uh, after that, there's an epilogue and some appendices. So the epilogue basically recaps what we've learned talks about the history, the kind of questionable science that led to the guidelines that said to restrict salt. talks about, again, the harmful effects of salt restriction, how it's not really beneficial or very limited benefit to limiting salt, to restricting salt, harmful effects of sugar, and what to do next. And then he also talks about sharing this information with other people because, again, people don't really know that salt's not bad for them and it is good for them. <laughs> people don't know. Organizations don't seem to know. Um, so yeah, it's very much underappreciated. And if you're a medical provider, see if you can kind of, uh, put this into practice and avoid low salt recommendations, talk to your colleagues, try to change the culture. If you're a policymaker, you know, push for relying on better studies rather than just the not quote knowledge that's been passed down over the generations or over the decades and don't warn against salt or s suggest a restriction of salt. But he does talk about things like taxing sugary foods and stuff like that and how it can be helpful. Um, appendix number one is an 100-year 100 100-year timeline covering important historical events related to salt and sugar. So I won't go over all of these, of course, 
But it starts in the early 1900s with that salt blood pressure hypothesis and the salt wars and the rice diet and kind of questionable research that went back and forth in some cases about what conclusions they were drawing. And then the dietary guidelines starting in 1980 and beyond dietary goals in 1977, but the dietary guidelines in 1980. the Time magazine had an issue called Salt, a New Villain in 1982, kind of shows where it was in the public cultural consciousness. Um, then various meta-analyses through the 90s and the 2000s, which kind of went back and forth, but the most recent best research shows that salt restriction is not going to give you much benefit, if any, and it is harmful. So the it, really the research, the data, the literature that's out there does not support all these broad recommendations for people to limit or restrict salt is kind of the big takeaway of from that um, historical outline or timeline. Um, and then for some reason, the audiobook didn't have appendix number two, whatever that was. I, I listened to the audiobook. And then appendix three is salt content of favorite foods. So he, he goes over how much sodiums in different foods, just so you kind of have a general idea how much salt your body is craving. But you don't need to count how much salt you're eating. Just eat all the salt you crave, basically. Um, So he lists off a bunch of foods and kind of gives that information. So that was the salt fix. I think that's really, really valuable information for you to at least have a general understanding of. And so hopefully this summary was helpful. Um, It was kind of a long summary, but the the book itself is about eight hours. So this will be less than an hour. So at at least it's less than an eighth as long. But it's really helpful for you to have a general idea because... Restricting the salt has all these different harmful effects, and getting enough salt has all these helpful effects, and that's especially true in the context of fasting or eating low carbohydrate or both, which are some really helpful treatments for things like obesity and high blood sugar and even high blood pressure. Fasting and keto are really helpful treatments for that, but you're going to do better with those and be able to sustain them more and feel better if you get enough salt if you get enough sodium in your body. Um, As always, this is not medical advice, obviously, because everybody has unique circumstances, but the vast majority of people will do better with more salt and not less. So that's the summary of the salt fix. Thanks for being here. I'll catch you next time.